Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning, folks. It's Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, a bit of politics with your Wheaties or whatever it is that you crunch on in the morning. It's a a lovely day outside. You may not know that, but it is. And if you're podcasting it, uh, it probably is completely irrelevant. But anyway, Solidarity Breakfast is available later after the real time. But we're here together right now making history because uh, that's what real time's all about. Today, we're going to to uh, go to the Save Vic Market Rally, which happened on Friday the 21st of March. It uh, started off very quiet, not very many people, and then all of a sudden it swelled up. And uh, I discovered quite a lot of information about what's going on down at the Vic Market. And I must say, I was pretty horrified. Uh, there's been a groundswell of a slow but sure uh, antipathy to the uh, planned redevelopment no it's not a it's a remodeling a reshaping as opposed to uh, what the traders would like to have done which is actually a revamping rather than a complete makeover but you'll hear more about that as uh, time goes on uh and uh, it's got particular relevance to the union movement because uh as you'll find from the report, a groundbreaking thing first happened, has happened. Small business stallholders, in the, for the first time in Australian history, have joined a union in order to battle against uh, the big end of town being led by Robert Doyle, the mayor of Melbourne. Isn't that fascinating? Okay, so that's the first report we've got for you. And later on, we're going to talk to Don Sutherland about uh, what... Workers Unite means today because, of course, the uh, original uh, May Day rallies were around uh, uh, equality and pay and uh, uh, eight hours work, eight hours sleep, or what is it, eight hours day, no, eight hours work, eight hours rest and eight hours uh, um, uh, recreation effectively. That was what it was about. It was about having a proper life, not you uh, work to live, not uh, live to work. Uh, but anyway, uh, things are uh, afoot, as you will have heard on the uh, great report from Colin Hesse talking to Arthur Wararis from uh, uh, the uh, south, uh, south Coast in New South Wales. The, uh, not only are the federal government aiding a betting 
the uh, exploitation of young workers, but they're actually directly, directly funding it. Oh, just fantastic that someone actually said it out loud. So times are uh, different now, or, or maybe it's more of the same, but Anyway, the battle continues. So we're going to talk to Don Sutherland, who uh, was uh, the chief industrial officer at the AWMU, now retired, but uh, a brains trust when it comes to workers' uh, uh, issues, industrial law. He actually reads the fine print. There should be more of it. Of course, we've got This Is The Week That Was. We're going to get an update on something we talked about a while ago, which was the uh, commandeering of uh, Kalani Beach, public land, down along the uh, uh, south coast of Victoria, west, west, western Victoria, for the use of commercial uh, uh, racehorses, you know, uh, using it for a training uh, place. Uh, now, there was a recent uh, council victory. Uh, Moyne Council voted against allowing it to becoming a commercial hub when it was really a public beach. But apparently there's been a bit of uh, backstepping now that uh, Warrnambool is in the middle of its May Day races. So uh, we're going to talk to uh, Shane Howard about what's going on down there. Uh, he's going to give us an update, that is, if he answers the phone. And after that, oh, there's even more. We've got this great report from uh, the March for Science in Sydney given to us by Vivian Langford, some juicy pieces, juicy morsels to enjoy. A new illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website... 3cr.org.au or pick up your copy at the station. Dusting off Billy Bragg twice in one morning. Fantastic. And that's just to remind you that, yes, indeed, Radiothon is back again. And uh, the slogan is Radio for Change. That's us, 3CR. And you, the listeners, starts on June the 5th and goes to the 18th. And, yes, we still do have some of the copies of that wonderful book that... uh, uh, commemorates Bill Della, the great Bill Della, who opens our program with his uh, lovely voice. He did die a couple of years ago, but we do remember Bill. We remember Bill fondly and we wish he was still here. But uh, Bill, the book, Bill Della book, is, it's great. It's a great read. It's a uh, done in comic form, and it was put together by some very skilled devotees of Bill. So it's actually worth a read, worth a buy, and you will be contributing to the longevity of this radio show, Solidarity Breakfast, which is a uh, station-endorsed program. Hopefully we're bringing to you some tasty morsels that uh, uh, means you would your Saturday morning would be a hole if we weren't there. Anyway, let's, as I said, go to the Save Vic Market uh, 22nd of April rally. And if you don't know much about this, 
This is a very important um, piece of uh, information about, uh, just like the Kalani Beach thing, about public spaces and uh, them being gone when you don't be careful. Repurpose the market into a gourmet food and entertainment precinct, uh-huh. um, which is not what this market is. It's a working, um, gritty market for customers that Melbourne is iconic. Melbourne loves it. It's, it's as iconic as the MCG. It's Melbourne's number one tourist attraction. So what they're planning to do is um, take down sheds A, B, C, D, dig down two floors and put in refrigeration and services. Now, once you put in that kind of refrigeration, you've got a supermarket. You can store food for six weeks. Our market has a three-day turnaround. We are a fresh food market, and that's why Melbourne comes here. We don't want that kind of shopping. And council has, there's a deliberate atrophy of our market to shrink it, to minimise, sanitise and gentrify this wonderful place which was given to the people of Victoria as a working market. And so does that mean that they want to get rid of the people who are actually here at the moment and bring in what, much more uh, moneyed uh, players? Well, I think that is the intention. They would never say that. Once you start putting in that kind of infrastructure, rents go up and your average trader just can't afford it anymore. And that's the gentrification and sanitation. This is a gritty place. That's what people like. It's the real deal. And that's what attracts the locals here and tourists because... It reflects our city, the multicultural nature of our city and what we like to do and who we are. Why can't they go and do this somewhere else? My very point, absolutely. And they have, but they want to replicate it here. Look, Robert Doyle wants an entertainment space. He wants to... um, have convert the car park into an entertainment space. There's no... He hasn't got permits to do anything. What, what, what does he mean, entertainment space? Well, where you can have the Melbourne Fashion Festival. He doesn't want to rent space at Fed Square. He wants to just move it all over here. So what we'll have is an entertainment space with a market attached. The other thing is um, the Munro site, which has been purchased and on Ferry Street, which has been purchased by the City of Melbourne, um, which technically isn't part of the the market but impacts on the market because it's exactly across the road to the market. They want to put a 200 metre building there which, like the Brady building at the end of the street, which will have an enormous impact on the market. The open panel hearing of last year, the outcome of that was a recommendation to the planning minister Richard Wynne for only 100 metres. Now the The council, like the Napthine government, has signed a penalty deal with the developers that if they don't get their 200 metres, they get paid $80 million. And that's ratepayers' money. We're paying for this. Now, it's really quite concerning Doyle. He's got a team, Team Doyle. He's got the majority on council now. Um, Our trader, who was voted into the council, has now had to stand down, which means Michael got many, many more votes than the councillors that have been put on in his place, which gives Doyle a majority. I mean, it's, it's, and it was discretion it's, too. It was it was decided that your candidate was taken off because some other panel said that it was. It was a VCAT hearing. It yeah. Was a, yes, and um, 
I have my own views on that, but I won't go down there. That path. Too dangerous. Yep. But um, Michael was um, represented the market, and we needed someone on the inside to talk about the concerns and issues of both traders and the customers. Now, my perspective is I know my traders. I've been, I, my father was a trader here. I've been here all my life. But my concern is for the customers. I'm a customer. And for me, shopping here is a feeling of well-being. I love the place. This is my preferred way to shop, like many people who come here. So Friends of Queen Victoria Market Facebook page, which is a community page, anyone can just jump on and have their comment, reflects the views mainly of um, the shoppers, the supporters, the people who really come here and buy from the traders. Why have they got this plan that nobody else is supporting? It's because it's developer-driven. It's no, no secret that the Lord Mayor is great friends with developers. He had, last year, had to stand aside for more than 12 planning decisions because of conflict of interest. This is the first time in the market's history you've got small businesses joining a union. Traditionally, that's not what they do, but they have joined the union to get their, to get to unite and to be their voice and help them in all the negotiations that um, is necessary to promote and protect our market. Thanks. Can you tell me why you're involved in this, the, the defending the market? Yes, well, I've been defending the market since 1971. I was, as a boy, I was part of the original green band that went on. Um, and, yeah, I, I'm defending it because it is a, a people's space. Um, it's it's, a, it's a, 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 a creative space where people can meet, where they can, uh, with some leisure, they can sit and discuss over coffee and food. It's the shared table. It's the shared meal. It's, it's all of that stuff that consumerism is driving out of the culture. And, and this is just another attempt at a land grab which would destroy that you know, cultural significance of part of Melbourne. So, yeah, that's why I'm here. Thanks. What are you talking about? I'm, I'm from 3CR. So was on the, um, on, on the ABC this morning, and I didn't hear it, but apparently he it. got really stuck no, into the market. He raised it independently, yeah. and, and what he was really saying was that, you know, that it was up to government and local government to you know, keep uh, developers uh, you know, on, on a leash because he said they'll just do anything they can, they'll just whack as many stories as they can. He said that Richard Winnan made a few good decisions in knocking back enormous high-rise things. I mean, the limit there's, you know, 40 stories and they want to have a, you know, 56 or something. It's oh, 100, actually. 100. Uh, you've got an NUW T-shirt <laughs> on and uh, you're a supporter? I am, so, I'm a member of Friends of Queen Victoria, Friends of Queen Victoria Market. I'm a customer, not a trader, but I'm one of the people who do the Facebook page. Okay, and tell me, why have you become involved? Well, because I really value the market, and I value it not only because of its aesthetic and heritage um, considerations, but because it's a really democratic space. It's a place where all sorts of different people move, mix together and do something in common. And there are not many spaces like that nowadays. Do you uh, live in Melbourne or uh, do you live in the inner suburbs? I don't live in the inner inner suburbs. I live in the middle suburbs. She comes in from Mitcham. I come from Mitcham. People come from Cheltenham. They come from Keylor. They They come from Yarra Glen. And we're substantial customers. We spend like hundreds of dollars a week at the market. I worked out, I spent, in one day I said to four people, and I worked out, I spent $12,000 here on fruit and vegetables, etc. And between a year, and between four of us, we spent 75000 a year. So, 
I want a market for the people who live here. Um, I want a, a market that, you know, supports the community and, and allows it to, you know, to meet its needs. It's good to see you here. Yeah, thanks, Annie. It's good to be here. Hopefully we can save the uh, market like we've done once before. There's a lot of, a lot of jobs at stake here, which are members of our union now, the NUW. I mean, yeah, it's a heritage-listed building. It was saved back in the 70s through the efforts of Norm Gallagher and the, the BLF members. So, I mean, we can't let that work go to waste. I mean, we've got to remember the union movement saved this place in the past, so we have to yeah, save it this time around. Okay, Elby, tell me, uh, you're, you're a stallholder. Yes, I am. And so you're out, you've, you've got the NUW T-shirt on, so can you tell me why do you think it's such an important thing to be out here today? Well, it's, it's an iconic little uh, market. I was brought here when I was a, a baby, more or less, by my grandmother. I would like my grandchildren's grandchildren to see what I've seen and experience the sights and the excitement of the place. And by doing this, it's just going to absolutely take away... The whole fabric of the market, they're pulling out thread by thread, they're disrupting the traders and making the traders feel uh, incompetent. They make the traders feel ugly inside themselves because they've systematically squeezed us down. So we've got to keep this market. It's just, just too precious for Melbourne. Who are these people that are pushing you guys out? Well, without naming names, it obviously comes from the developers who in turn get behind people running the city of Melbourne, who get behind who run this. So every CEO, CEO we've had here has had this on their agenda. They're brought in to systematically beat us down till there's no opposition, least opposition. They've locked traders into uh, leases now and they hold that over their head if they don't agree with what's going on. And you know, it's just not right. The whole thing's been orchestrated for many, many, many years. How many people will lose their jobs over this, do you think? Oh, crikey, it's insurmountable. You know, every stall has a minimum of two people, some five. And the 750 stalls, that's just the first... So we're talking on. thousands. That's just, that's just the first knock-on from here. Then there's follow-up where those people go with their goods, like the fish and the meat. They go to restaurants and lose that, that uh, contract, that interaction with the market then there. But also, you know, ordinary people won't have a direct connection to fresh food. No, and they won't have a direct connection to a fresh face, a happy face, and a closeness of the whole unit. It's, it's really, it's a, every day is a new day, and it's a great experience meeting people, good and bad. Uh, it's just, it's just marvellous. Did you join the union because of this? Yes, yes, primarily, yes, yes, because I could see we weren't making any inroads by ourselves because we're so greedy with each other, we're subdivided, I think, is the biggest problem. OK, and this, so this gives you a chance to... Oh, and also... Uh, unions are very good at uh, staging campaigns. Yes, they are. They're professional. They are professionals. You know, they're not all the bullies that they're made out to be, from what I've seen, but they certainly know what they're doing and how to go about doing it. Thanks very much. Welcome, everyone. My name's Katerina. I am the National President of the National Union of Workers. And... <laughs> We're the union out here that is helping unionise this market and giving the traders uh, their voice back 
um, in this fight against the redevelopment. So um, we're proud to be here today to put our voice together with the voice of the community and to stand up and fight to save the Victoria market. I want everyone just to spend one moment to look around the market, the market that we love. Um, this is one of the last working markets in Australia. It is of historical importance because of the heritage sheds. It is special because it is an open air working market and it's all under threat and it's at risk. But I do want to spend a moment just to talk about the traders. The traders at this market, they're the heart and soul of this market. They have, their voice has been ignored and disrespected for too long. It is the traders who feel the daily pressure of poor management decisions. Poor management decisions by CEOs and the board of, the, of this market who do not listen to them. Um, last year, hundreds of them decided to join and form a union. And that was a really brave step that many of them took for the first time in their lives. And because they joined a union, they have won many, many battles. Uh, they have uh, elected representatives in each and every part of this market. And those representatives are challenging the power of management and wrestling control back into the hands of the traders. They have won a role on the storeholder rep committee, which until they joined the union was a sham consultative committee. It is now representative of the, of the market and of the traders. They have won verbal commitments on a five by five by five year lease, but it is only verbal and we want it in writing. It is not good enough to have verbal promises at this market where, the paper, where paper is worth more here. They have um, won a vote on local council through a democratic process and they lost that vote through an undemocratic process. But we need to win a lot more for these traders. These traders need a written commitment that they will be here before, during and after the market is upgraded. Upgraded, not redeveloped. Upgraded. Is There is a difference. We want storeholders on the board. The board does not reflect... The board does not reflect the experience of the market. The people who know this market the best are the traders. They are the true voice here of what happens every day in this market. And we want an immediate 50% rent reduction because the traders here should not have to pay for the poor decisions that CEOs and the management here have done. Right? They deserve to be compensated for the bad decisions of management. We need to keep prices low. Yep, and the only way you can do that is if we give them relief and the traders have a say in how this market runs. Um, the CEO of this market was quoted as saying that no trader will be moved during this renewal process. No one will lose their lease, their licences. Well, I'm holding here a bunch of warnings that traders get here every single day of the week. So every single day of the week, traders at this market are given notices that threaten their livelihoods. They are told that they will be terminated and their, and their leases are put under jeopardy. That is not right. That is not fair. It is not fair for traders to live in fear 
and under intimidation. And we are asking after this rally today, a number of the reps will go and we will tell the management to rip these up because they are not valid, they are not just and they are not fair. In Australia, it does not matter whether you are a working person in a factory or you are running a store. You do not live under the threat of intimidation and fear. That is not the way that we operate. It is not what we are here to do. We are here to give a voice to the traders. And I want to thank all the traders and their reps, right, for standing up and having the courage to fight back. You are uh, the backbone of this of this campaign, and I want and I'm proud to stand with you. So thank you. Listen without my care. Let me hear you say stop. Messing without my care. Stop. Messing without my care. Come on, everybody, stop. Messing without my care. Everybody now, stop. Messing without my care. Come on now, stop. Please welcome the unofficial mayor of Melbourne, Bill Cleary. Campaigns and struggles go on and they are won by the people. Friends of the Victorian market, rebels of Melbourne, connoisseurs of fresh food, lend me your ears. We have the best open-air market in the world. It is the number one tourist destination in Melbourne. It generates millions and millions of dollars for Melbourne. And we have a foolhardy little Nero sitting up in Town Hall who wants to destroy this market. Hands off our market. What does he and his urban planners and developers want to do? They want to plant the Tower of Babel alongside the greatest open-air market in the world. So he searches for heaven and identity and sadly his identity is in shreds. This morning on ABC Radio, Paul Keating said that any attempt to touch this market, to peel off a paint or move a rivet was an act of vandalism. What does this mayor want to do? He wants to rip those sheds from their moorings, those historic sheds that breed atmosphere and carry the souls of generations of traders. Michael Kayafa Sr., Frankie Fontana, over in a shed whose grandfather came here after the war from Italy. The Vitalani's down the road. There are Italians from Calabria and other parts of the world that have made this market unique. We've got fabric, we've got rhythm. It's organic, it's special. It enhances our well-being. When we come here, we see smiling faces. We see cheery people. We're not in a supermarket queue. We're actually tasting real life. But he wants to rip those sheds and he wants to send the bulldozers in 
and dig a massive excavation. What kind of development is that, Tom? Hands off our market. So, and of course we proposed a solution to parking. We said we can put a cantilever on the car park and we can green it and we can bring in biodigesters and we can turn the market into a centre of renewable energy and a place where people are happy to be. It's not a food market. It's not a place to just eat food. It's a place to buy quality, fresh food. The supermarkets don't give you fresh food. Their oranges are six weeks old. What does the Doyle mob want to do? Refrigeration, they say no, but I reckon that's what they're after. They want to move the fabric of the market underground. They want to push it out of sight, drive us underground, make us all automatons. We are not going to accept that. We are going to fight this proposal. The Lord Mayor's position is gone on this question. So what's the solution? We are saying to Robert Doyle, Rob Adams and the management of the market, we want you back at the table. We want you at the table where we will propose, propose a strategy, a refurbishment only of this market in the image of its people, not in the image of a bloke sitting on a, in a palace up the road. And I believe we fought for the market with the BLF back in the 70s. We fought for this market and we'll fight for it again. We will not lose this battle. They are on the run. If you in the community raise your hand, we know Richard Wynn is on our side. He says this market proposal is bad. Well, Richard, you couldn't be here today, but we'll be looking for you soon to talk with us, shoulder to shoulder with us, shoulder to shoulder in the campaign to stop this act of vandalism. We want to save our market. We can win it. There are five seats around here, around Melbourne, that are all dicey. The, who wants to be the first person in that seat to stick their hand up in defence of an act of vandalism that destroys the culture of this market? That is it from me. We can win. We've been going at it for months. We have management. We have Doyle on the run. And it'll remain our market, our Victoria market. Thank you. Hi, I'm... No, I didn't do testing. Oh, okay. Testing, testing. <laughs> okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to 3C... Yeah, you are. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. We've just been listening to the palaver that was da- happening down at the Victoria Market, the rally on uh, the uh, 21st of... April, the 21st of April, uh, where they're fighting words from uh, uh, Phil Cleary. Uh, But on the phone, we've got uh, Don Sutherland. How are you, Don? I'm very good, thanks, Annie. And hello to you and your listeners. Yeah. It's great to hear Phil Cleary's voice. Yeah. As you probably know, and uh, what a stalwart campaigner uh, Phil is. And uh, uh, that was terrific. Yeah, that's right. It's always good to hear someone in full flight, isn't it? Yes. And uh, uh, the reason for why... we talk about family rates again? 
Oh, no, we're not going to talk penalty rates. I wanted to talk to you about, because it's uh, tomorrow in uh, Melbourne anyway, we're going to be having uh, worker day celebrations to, uh, you know, it's about six days too late, really. May the 1st is the usual day for May Day, but uh, all across the country and internationally, different uh, uh, groups of people have uh, taken the whole week to decide when they're going to do their celebrations in support of workers and their rights. And uh, it's a uh, um, we're living in interesting times, aren't we? When in in relation to workers' rights, we've just earlier in the not in this program, but earlier on Stick Together, we had a great interview from Colin Hesse with uh, Arthur Roris about, and he states the federal government's been not only aiding and abetting the exploitation of young workers, for example, they're actually direct, directly funding it with their uh, traineeships that don't even supply training that are going through public, uh, private RTOs. Anyway, I w- wanted to talk to you about what it means to be uh, to unite as workers in the 21st century today. Well, I think um, uh, what was true about the workers who formed unions uh, in the late uh, unions, as we know them at least, in the late 19th century is just as true for workers in the 21st century. And that is that uh, inevitably uh, at work, and it's so true these days across all countries of the world, that uh, employers are desperate to, in one way or another, and often in several ways, to exploit workers, which causes havoc in both their working lives and also beyond work. And so workers want to resist that. It's human to resist that. And the most effective way of resistance is through acts of combination. And in the Australian context, those acts of combination of workers coming together uh, can happen through unions, but also from time to time. Nowadays, we're hearing about workers acting in combination, that is, as prototype unionists, Uh, in areas like fast food and uh, small businesses, franchise businesses like 7-Eleven and so on. And Arthur Roris, I think, is what uh, he and his uh, brothers and sisters in the South Coast Trades and Labor Council, what they are doing to take these acts of combination by workers who are not yet members of unions uh, coming together and to support them and help them is a terrific example of the sort of work that can be done to rebuild the strength of the union movement so that it's relevant, more and more relevant for uh, 21st century workers. It's kind now, of... The problem with that, of course, is that just like at the end of the 18th century, the uh, the parliaments introduced what were then called the Anti-Combination Acts, uh, which were anti-union uh, organising acts, not, a, not very much different, actually, to what we find with the penal powers in the Fair Work Act uh, these days, and which are also found in the consumer legislation, uh, uh, where there are provisions that prevent pre- prevent workers from acting in solidarity with each other. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, if we go back to what you said about uh, 
uh, Arthur and uh, what they're doing along in the southwest coast about supporting workers that uh, aren't yet union members, which in some respects is similar to the approach uh, that's happening at uh, the Young Workers Centre at the Victorian Trades Hall, uh, that initiative. Uh, It it points to the fact that uh, in this consumerist neoliberal society that – the, the assault on uh, collective uh, solidarity approaches is so strong that uh, we're seeing uh, the uh, active breaking down of uh, people into individual units and the younger members of society have to relearn the reasons for why you work in a collective manner. Well, that's true. Every generation, in a sense, has to learn how to... Uh, act in combination and also participate and effectively uh, run their own run their unions. I think the other point about all this, and it shows up very much in the penalty rates campaign, uh, and also in disputes like those all the activities of the Young Workers Centre in Victoria and South Coast Trades and Labor Council, and no doubt elsewhere, is that it's not just young workers. It's the, the workers who are being hyper-exploited in these situations are also non-English-speaking background workers. And, uh, the, of course, the 21st century workforce in, in a lot of these industries are non-English-speaking background where the primary language are languages like Arabic, Urdu and Hindu. And the Australian Union movement, I think, uh, has got itself, the existing institutionalised union movement, with its whole network of, um, of officials and uh, union delegates and so on, are struggling, I think, to be able to uh, reach those workers in a meaningful way at this stage. Learning how to do that is not easy, and um, uh, but it is a necessity because they are an essential part of the 21st century workforce. It's um. This brings me to a point, a very a thorny uh, point, actually, which is that yes, you've got the established union movement, which has to actually change. It has to morph. It has to become much more limber, and uh, that then has an effect on the existing power structures or the individual power kingdoms that different union uh, um, officials. Garner to themselves. Now, we've just this week we've had a very interesting uh, connection between the AWU and the ABCC being made. It was uh, uh, it was found that the AWU uh, had a delegates meeting and uh, had uh, Nigel Hatchkits coming to the table to instruct them on the ABCC, the Building Code wow. Commission. Now, this has uh, sent ripples through the union movement because, of course, it shows there there are certain unions and certain power elites within the unions which could be uh, said to be working against the principle of solidarity. Well, uh, I haven't heard that story before. And, uh, oh, right. No, well, it's, it, I, I'm, I'm bringing the news to you. Good on you. I appreciate that. Well, I, I really, uh, that is a pretty uh, interesting, uh, I would say almost astonishing thing to do, given the role that Hatchkiss has played and also his sheer uh, contempt for uh, his role in the, 
I mean, I think the incredible um, uh, hearing where Senator Doug Cameron interviewed him about his work methods and his whole approach to handling the issues in the construction industry. And clearly what he revealed is that he is an arrogant... He doesn't even keep a diary, or that's what he told uh, the Senate hearing. And he's basically running an industrial police force and uh, focused particularly upon construction workers and other workers who are working in relationship to construction. Uh, so, uh, but as to that particular tactic by the AWU, you're saying? Yep. Uh, I, uh, without knowing a lot more, I, I, I just, it's a pretty amazing thing to do, but there might have been some logic uh, to it that um, uh, makes sense, but at the present time escapes me anyway. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, anyway, it's a, it is a battlefield. It's a battlefield. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, it, it is beholden on people to be good-hearted, big-hearted and support each other in the in the fight, isn't it? Yeah. Annie, with your permission, I think we should just say something because it bears upon all of this. I think there's some really interesting developments going on with the penalty rates decision that have to do with the building of an in, of a campaign that reaches beyond uh, current union members, um, because on May the 9th, the Fair Work Commission is going to hand down its um, implement implementation decision. That is the timing of the dates when the cuts to the penalty rates in those uh, in those awards for hospitality workers and retail, fast food, and pharmacy workers. It's going to hand down the dates and also whether or not there will be a staged approach. And so there's a lot of activity going on. So, for example, the North East Border Trades and Labor Council is running uh, what appears to be a campaign meeting on Saturday the 14th. Um, I think it's starting at about... Um, uh, it's starting in the morning and going for a couple of hours. And in Sydney on May the 13th, the Search Foundation is running a public meeting to discuss strategy, which is all including about uniting more young workers into the campaign, and that's at the Labor Council uh, starting at 2 o'clock and going till 4.30. On top of that, the United Voice has is attempting to build uh, more opportunity, if you like, for workers in those industries to uh, be able to have an effective say in uh, preventing these cuts. And they're doing that by uh, first making submissions. So they've made a submission, which the commission will say something about on May the 9th, in which they're doing two things. Firstly, they're urging that the commission's proposed cuts to the penalty rates be deferred for two years uh, and then phased in quite gradually. And they've presented, I think, some a good, very good set of reasons around why that should occur. In addition, they've advised the Fair Work Commission that they are appealing to the federal court that the Fair Work decision breaches the judicial requirements of the Fair Work Act. Now, the Fair Work Commission can't decide on that because, you know... No, who, who is taking it to the federal court? 
United Voice, the union. They yeah, right. Union. Okay, good. Workers. Yeah. And the uh, the the rationale, I won't go into all the reasons for it, but the they have an argument that the economic rationale, the macroeconomic uh, rationale used by the Commission to justify its decision is wrong and inconsistent with the requirements of the Act. So that, uh, and therefore they're saying that if that's going to happen, there ought to be a stay or a delay, to put it in our language, uh, a, a delay in the application uh, of uh, the Fair Work Commission's decisions to uh, cut the rates. Right. Now, so a legal, a, a legal skirmish is, a, is afoot. Well, it's, yeah, it's a little bit more than a legal skirmish because it has industrial implications. Oh, no, yeah, I know. It's really important. It gives more time to build up uh, confidence and awareness and capacity for uh, young workers, English as a second language workers, to get involved in defending their living standards. Now, it's reinforced, in fact, this approach by United Voice. There was a report came out on May the 1st uh, from the Australia Institute Centre for Future Work that revealed that looking at 108 different Australian industries, there are two and three-quarter million Australian workers who are on the job on a weekend, typically. And if penalty rate cuts were spread, as is the intention of the employers, with, in, and with some sympathy from the Fair Work Commission, that would take $14 billion a year out of the Australian economy. Wow. That's that's $14 billion less in demand. And you then connect And that. in taxes, personal tax rates no, for no, the, the government? No, no, no. Well, it includes, obviously, some of that would be taxed, going back to the federal government. But it's $14 billion that out of the pay packets of weekend workers over a whole year across all of those industries. God, the now, employer class is so greedy. Yeah, and, well, they, they really, they're sort of hoist on their own petard because lo and behold, yesterday, of all things, the Reserve Bank of Australia comes out and says that the problem of household affordability is that people don't have the wages to be able to afford their houses. And the wages go from 2% per year growth to about 11% to help solve the problem of household affordability. So here we have one of the architects of wage cutting, uh, of stifling wages, now realising that there's a particular problem with that and agreeing with a progressive left-wing think tank pointing out the problems that go with the, the attack on penalty rates. Unbelievable, well, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's no, it's no, re, no uh, uh, wonder that uh, the mantra that this federal government is incompetent has got wings. Yes. Yes, it, 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 well, it's, it's, it, it is both um, incompetence, but the government's primary purpose is to look after uh, or to manage the economy in the way in which, uh, so that employers can maximise their profit. Their theory being that there's a trickle-down effect to everyone else. and uh, That goes with the bad apple theory. <laughs> and and so they're, they're, that's the logic of it. But, of course, 
it's illogical logic, if I could put it that way. That's right. And it reveals the endemic, the, the sort of at-the-core contradictions in an attempt in the way in which this government and probably the way in which uh, Bowen thinks there will be similar contradictions if Labor tries to manage the economy in a similar way, if not an identical way. Well, Don, we have to leave it there, and I'll tell you what, the call to arms, the uh, it's never been more important for workers to unite. Can we, can we just finish very quickly? There's a wonderful organiser, and no doubt there's lots more doing the same thing, a wonderful organiser at Sydney mm-hmm. that goes out in these regular visits to workplaces who are not at the moment directly affected by the cuts to penalty rates. But he explains it to them, and the workers, lo and behold, either carry a resolution or have a photograph taken of them all holding don't cut penalty rates signs and post them to Facebook. So he he goes to his workplaces, encouraged by, and I think there are other organisers, and his name's Fergal Ipe, he's he's ex-Victorian organiser, bringing his wares to New South Wales if there's a bit of parochialism out there. (laughs) <laughs> and he's doing a great job uh, enlivening the possibility for greater worker solidarity uh, by getting resolutions carried, getting photographs taken, involving workers who are not directly affected right now. And I think that's the sort of thing that there needs to be a lot of. And there is, in fact, at the uh, ACTU campaign page, the text of a resolution that any person can take to their workplace to get carried and then uh, reported back to the ACTU. So there's good evidence for all of that. Good on you, Doug. That's terrific. Uh, Great to talk again, Annie, and keep up the great work with your wonderful program. Thanks, mate. All the best. Hi, my name is Lex Wharton and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. Solidarity Bricky Team listener when big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull was last seen twiddling his thumbs in New York, using those thumbs to thumb mindlessly through boring waiting room magazines and repeatedly looking at his watch. While far away in Washington, US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Donald Trump or the poor was whooping it up celebrating his success at attacking insurance companies by pouring trillions into their coffers as the cost of insuring the poor to whom he has devoted his presidency are denied health care. For Donald knows health care is very, very expensive and must be earned and if the poor don't earn enough then it's a win-win. Under my best ever in the history of the world policy, the poor will be put out of their suffering sooner. This is a compassionate policy. Very good. Very good. Uh, Mr. Supremo, you're supposed to be meeting that true blue Aussie guy in New York to celebrate a bit of train killing. 
uh, True Blue Aussie, uh, where's that again? Uh, somewhere near, uh, on the way, I think, to North Korea, isn't it? Because uh, I remember I sent that very great, very good armada there. They, are they a threat? He's the guy in that phone call. God, not him again. Talk about spoiling a great day. And with that, they whipped out the blank is a true friend of the USR with whom we have a very special relationship, idiot board, and some distracted like he posted North Korea where he should have posted True Blue Aussie. Malcolm had flown halfway round the world to be kept twiddling his thumbs in New York and would fly halfway round the world back to where he came from as soon as the meeting of minds, very short and getting shorter by the minute meeting of minds was over, because he had to get back to finalise the budget whose main objective is not wasting money. On which we mentioned last week big economic guru scuttled them more lash sons Good debt, created by handing the public purse to the super-efficiency of the private sector, whose major efficiency seems to be getting its hands on the public purse, mentioned Scuttlebeam's good debt would resolve his deficit-stroke surplus problem by not being a debt at all, fiscal leger de man and that the long-haired commie greedy brigade have this silly notion that a surplus is no more than taxes raised, not spent on the services for which they were raised. Well, this week, our very own socialist state big economic guru, Tim Pelese, the bosses, announced a surplus and headed off next day to enjoy a lunch and explain his leger to man with the natural constituency of a true socialist economic guru, the big end of town, sundry chambers of profits, assuring them socialism, Tim and big supremo who-who, well, thanks to Lord Rupert of Wapping, we know who, who, who is. The pejorative Dan. Socialism, Tim and who, who style, was no threat to their economic and policy hegemony. And silly fools, they believed him, when it's clear his budget is all about destroying capitalism and creating a socialist utopia. We look forward to seeing Tim and who, who leading the May Day March. Although perhaps it's best they don't, because that would reveal their true intent, and it's important to keep their attack on capitalism as clandestine as possible. And goodness, don't they do that well. Tim promised those gullible great exponents of the greatest little economic order of them all, we will have surpluses as far as the eye can see. And with that he turned and walked back into the wall. On May Day and the aforementioned trained killing celebration in New York, Monday morning, much excitement as I prepared to acknowledge at least some decency in a trained killer who just loves a bit of trained killing. It was a bitter, hard-fought battle. I heard Her Most Gracious Majesties, when you see him, you see her representative in Trublawazi, big train killer Peter Corsgraves drone and thought, good on you, Pete, at least you're acknowledging May Day and the massive working class struggles that have gone on and still go on. But sadly, no. Train killer and lover of train killing Corsgraves was excitedly droning on about yet another trained killer battle, yet another slaughter, the things he loves. 
No mention of the battles fought and slaughter suffered by working people, battles against and slaughtered by the very protectors of the great true blue Aussie values born of train killing we must all cherish on whose behalf those train killer slaughters were conducted, whose interests cause graves and the politicians also celebrating train killing represent. Amid those celebrants, we discovered we have a Minister for Education whose concern for the subject obviously emanates from his failure to pass basic grammar, which might explain two things. First, his failure in grammar is obvious as he announced he would provide tertiary institutions with an efficiency dividend. Now, a dividend, as we all know, well, all of us except the Minister Simon Bering them know, a dividend is a distribution of money, as in share dividends to those who profit from the labour of those who labour. A win, in this case, created by efficiency. Thus, I'm sure we all thought, oh, goody, more money for universities, for education. But again, no. Simon announced the good news, an efficiency dividend. How much, how much, we kept waiting. Billy declared the efficiency dividend was a cut in funding, slashing money for education, the dividend going into the public purse, presumably for more important national priorities like lots and lots of submarines and lots and lots of US ARB train killer aircraft whose costs keep soaring higher than the aircraft are not soaring. Simon's dividend, a cut. Poor Simon, grade one grammar, totally wasted. And the second thing it might explain? Well, poor Simon is so distressed at his failure and being a politician, therefore knowing he has no faults, he knows the fault lies with the education system itself and he couldn't possibly fail. So why waste taxpayers' money propping up a failed system, even if it is propping up Simon, who having failed through no fault of his own grade one grammar or kindergarten grammar or whatever, saw limited job opportunities and so settled on being a politician? Simon also announced students would have to pay more to compensate for the efficiency dividend and pay it back as soon as they get a rip-off underpaid job at McDonald's or 7-Eleven, which is a further reflection of the education system's failures because when it comes to wages, it knows 7-Eleven adds up to about 12. But then again, universities could be thankful they're getting anything. After all, the vice-chancellors agreed when the little bald-headed bloke, who used to be big supremo back in those dark ages, turned education from education into business, corporations, universities transmogrifying into commercial enterprises. And we must thank the vice-chancellors for going all the way with the government and not doing anything as stupid as resisting the changes and suggesting education has something to do with education. Then again, most of the people squeezing students even more by bestowing this efficiency dividend on them. As an aside, what an incentive to be inefficient. That's obviously where the big rewards are, we assume. Under Simon's grasp of language, if we get an inefficiency dividend, they give us money. Anyway, most of those bestowing enjoying the benefits of free education introduced by the Socialist Government in 1973. Yes, uh, we ask current Socialist Party education shadow Tania Plibber sink the state sector. Uh, reintroducing fees and debt to, uh, to be educated must have come from a very conservative government. 
It did. It was that nuclear hawk himself, world's greatest worst treasurer, Paul, very conservative government. And Tania lived up to her sink the state sector epithet by attacking Simon Beringham's next big announcement that they would increase spending on schools by slashing the promised spending on schools. Tania exposing her socialist credentials by attacking poor Simon and Malcolm and Scuttlebem for cutting funding to the state sector, I hear you say. Well, Sorry, yet again, no. Tania attacked them for cutting handouts to a handful of rich private and religious schools. State aid for private schools is a cherished socialist principle, she exploded. Now, finally, oh, have I mentioned the biggest news in the world yesterday? Phil the Greek cutting back his onerous princing? What big news? Well, now I have mentioned it. Finally, on such critical matters, a piece of wheat that was trivia. As the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, Fairfax papers are produced by scabs, and I assume, listener, we're not buying them, a small, perhaps pedantic, but I feel important, sub-editorial correction to the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, Fairfax earlier in the week before it was produced by scabs. Headline, world's oldest person dies at 117, which, of course, should have read, world's ex-oldest person dies at. Then again, there was a story a couple of days later that a bloke in Indonesia and other people's business had died at 140 or so. So how come the 117 was the oldest? Which just goes to show how much we can believe in what the press tells us. But imagine in the world old, world's oldest race, the number two must be looking up the death notices every day, hoping. Good morning. on calling out the name He just keeps on saying you're to blame You shouldn't have to take it anymore Why can't you just walk straight out the door? Yes, in life. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. We're just going to have to close Kutcher Edwards' wonderful song, Hope, down so that we can have a chat with uh, Shane Howard. How are you, Shane? G'day, Annie. How are you? Good. Oh, you got to the football? Pardon? Did you get to the football this morning? No, no, that's next. <laughs> that's next. Well, you're First here. The interview, then the football, then the under 18 football. Okay, cool. Well, we're talking to you because uh, down at Kalani Beach, uh, we thought you had a victory over the uh, commercial interests who want to gallop racehorses down there. But not mm. quite. Well, it's a, it's, uh, look, it's gone on, dragged on this issue now for nearly 18 months. And it began with, you know, basically not the summer just been, but the summer before that in 2015, 2016, we had 80 horses a day suddenly arrive on our beach and start full-scale training 
uh, in the mornings, and it was uh, it was pretty destructive and it was pretty unsafe. And um, and so, like, it's been a long campaign. And then Moyne Shire have jurisdiction over Colony Beach, our local council, and they voted finally last last week to to ban commercial horse trading on that. Basically, it's a kilometre stretch of beach that they have jurisdiction over. The rest of it, of the, of the Belfast Coastal Reserve is managed by parks, but Killarney Beach comes under Moinshire's jurisdiction. So they voted to ban that, which was a great... Uh, community victory, really, wasn't it? It was a community yeah, it victory. Was, it, was, it really was, Annie. And then, um, of course, we just had the Warrnambool Racing Carnival, May Racing Carnival on then this past week, and... Um, the mayor turned around in. We had Martin Pakula down here, the minister for racing, and the attorney general, um, basically saying he was disappointed with Moyne Shire, and we felt interfering in what was local government and due process. And um, and then you know the mayor of the Moyne Shire council has turned around and gone, oh well, that decision's not finalised, and yeah, you know, we may revisit it. So um, we're still. We're living in this world that's sort of a bit like limbo. We're betwixt and between. And um, so we're very disappointed with the mayor for not making some kind of definitive statement. It's, um, I don't know how. And then his, his own shy councils have just come out in the last few days and blasted him for saying that they would reverse or change the decision because they see it as uh, very, um, well, very uh, inconclusive government, local government. Right, so what? What it, it's a battle now between uh, uh, Victorian government interference on local uh, jurisdiction and very powerful interest from the racing lobby too, Annie. Who uh, look all this trouble came essentially from one major trainer, who's one of the biggest trainers in Australia now, who just decided to invade our beaches basically from. Um, and it's had a huge impact as well, um, not just environmentally, um, but also on the very small local trainers who've been here for, you know, some of them 60, 50, 60, 70 years, who'd have one or two horses, and they used to train them on the beach, on the hard sand down at the water's edge. They did all the right things. They weren't a big issue. It didn't impact on... No, you could see them coming, sport. basically, and not only that, yeah, then absolutely. they do the yeah, and they do the business with they swim in the water and they have the rowboat out the front, you know, and all that stuff. It's all obvious. That's right. So it was very low impact and very local. It was an old story. It was part of the district, um, but then these larger scale trainers who came from out of town saw the advantage to be gained from that, and they took advantage of it. And you know, we had the sudden influx of, like I said, of eighty horses a day galloping um, you know, up and down our beaches and spreading out across the Belfast Coastal Reserve, which is a 20-kilometre stretch of really beautiful, wild shoreline. That is a recovering coastline, basically. You know, southwest Victoria remains one of the most damaged ecosystems in Australia. So you know, we've been appealing to the state government to make it a coastal park, to make it and to protect it finally, it's been protected all these years since uh, since Whitefellows came here, um, and it's got a lot of there's a lot of rich Aboriginal cultural heritage history. Uh, it deserves protecting, and, and you know we have migratory shorebirds, we have 
the little birds that fly from Siberia to here, we have a number of endangered species, the hooded plover, the orange-bellied parrot. You know, it's a re- it's an area worth protecting, and um, and that's what we've been calling on the state government to do. I, I might say, Annie, this isn't just us being, um, you know, environmental nutters or something. I, th- these things are actually protected by local government bylaws, by the Wildlife Act, by the EPBC Act, the Environmental Protection Biodiversity and Conservation Act at a federal level. Um, Josh Frydenberg, um, you know, the Minister for the Environment, uh, or the lack of it, uh, Lily D'Ambrosio at a state level, um, they've all shirked their responsibilities in regards to the environment and everyone rolls over for the holy dollar. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was going to say the commercial, the vandalism of commercial interests Stepping, mm. taking over public spaces when, in actual fact, they should be investing in their own exercise yards, which would return a dollar to the state. Absolutely, like we're not any racing per se, Annie. I mean, um, you know, my dad would say there's a time and a place for everything, and um, but this is a commercial interest. This is a business, you know, racing horses. And they shouldn't be on beaches. They shouldn't be on our very, very sensitive um, beaches where we have threatened species and where we have real public safety issues. You know, they should be on a course or a training track. That's the appropriate place. And uh, if they are lucrative businesses, then they should be providing their own facilities or the state government should be assisting them to do that. Yeah, they want a free lunch, basically. Um, What's the next step Hmm. for you guys? Well... Well, we're it, it's playing out with the local council now and with state government, and um, uh, we're certainly not going away as the Belfast Coast Reserve Action Group. Bill Yates has led this campaign from the outset. Uh, Bill's a local guy, you know, uh, who loves his fishing and you know knows that beach, and he's the one who alerted us all to what was going on in the first place a year and a half ago. Um, there's also uh, you know issues in the riding horses up the dunes. There's, there's a lot of issues, and there's a huge amount of pressure coming from the racing industry. But uh, we believe in a very simple principle of justice and fairness and doing the right thing. And we're not going to back down on that. We're not going to give up on that because, you know, you know when something's wrong and you can spot it from a mile off, and it's just a wrong that um, we certainly um, will not give up without um, pursuing every available option. Oh, thanks for talking to us, Shane, and uh, we'll watch, watch this carefully to ensure that uh, the message goes out. Uh, good luck with the under-18 football. No worries. <laughs> thanks, Annie. Off, off to Durang Maud like today. Off yeah, thanks for um, giving us the, the uh, chance to put our case to good, Annie. Good on you, mate. Bye. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. Yeah, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're going to finish off with a nice report that was put together by... uh, Vivian Langford, she does the BZE program on Monday at 5 on 3CO. Of course, that's also podcast. She's a great, great uh, environmental warrior, is Vivian. Anyway, she went down to the Sydney 
uh, Walk for Science. It's a, sh- a very small snippet of, of a large amount of things that she collected and we might uh, hear some more from other people uh, in uh, other programs. But this is uh, uh, the, it starts off with Simon Chapman, who is the Eremitus Professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney and it goes on to Jonica Newby uh, as they fight for sanity when it comes to appreciating the worth of science. He called climate science crap and he attempted to gut the CSIRO, abolished, he has abolished the National Preventive Health Agency before he was so rudely interrupted, was working his way through the Institute of Public Affairs list of 75 policies that they want scrapped. And since 2012, we've seen not one, not two, but three Senate inquiries into the non-disease of wind turbine syndrome. The NHMRC was pressured to quarantine funds to fund this nonsense. And after all this, the Wind Farm Commissioner who issued his first annual report just a week or so ago, needed to negotiate the resolution of just four complaints. So I think if we elect these clowns, we've got to expect a circus. And we're getting one. The Australian Academy of Science has disappointingly declined to endorse today's march. It says in an email that many of you will have seen, that Australia is not like the USA and science should not be politicised. But hello, science is being politicised and it's being politicised by Australian politicians who are attacking it. Early in my career, I went to the town hall and I heard Ralph Nader, the consumer activist, speaking about what he called uh, the duty of citizens to do something for their communities. And he put it to everybody in the room and it made a big impression on me in my early 20s that you ought to, despite what you do in your life, just do something to contribute towards the community. And I've been trying to do that for the last 40 years. But many scientists, many scientists, for all the fantastic work that we all do, are very shy about telling the world about what we do. So I'd like to appropriate Ralph Nader's uh, mission for us all and say, if you're a scientist, if you're doing fantastic work, if you're doing work that's important for the future of humanity and our planet, please make it your scientist's citizen's duty to get out there and write for the public about it, to speak to the media about it, to speak to community groups about it, to, to, to write to your politicians, to attend meetings like this. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Simon. Ladies and gentlemen, our next speaker is a vet. And I'm always excited by a vet because I cannot be the only person in this crowd with a small cavoodle. Something happens to women after 60 and cavoodles become a very intense experience. But well, I'll go into that at another time. Jonica Newby, of course, is a science writer and broadcaster and a founding member of Catalyst on ABC TV. She was also the presenter of the ABC TV series, The Animal Attraction, which was all about the domestication of pets, and she's written a book of the same name. She has twice, not once, but twice won the very prestigious Australian Museum Eureka Prize for Science Journalism. Please welcome Jonica.
all that, it may surprise you to hear that when I was a child, I wouldn't have said I had a particular aptitude for science. To me, it was simply part of being educated. You did humanities, you did sciences. It never occurred to me not to include science because how else do you find out about shit? And everyone I meet has an interest in science. What to eat, how to exercise, the best ways to deal with cancer, why people think the way they do. These are all questions best engaged with through science, not because scientists know best, it's simply because, as you all know, science is a method, not a tablet set in stone. It's a way of gathering and testing ideas and evidence to find the truth. And yet, there are still people, some of them in power, who believe science and scientists are somehow separate from society. Do they find truth inconvenient? Well, and in a post-fact world, well, there's another word for post-facts, isn't there? It's lies. So why don't we all, and those people in particular, try this little thought experiment Try getting up in the morning and noticing every time you have to thank a scientist. Okay, so for me, it starts with my alarm. I would reach over to my smartphone and turn it off. Thank you, smartphone, for being clever enough to go to the right time zone no matter where I am. Thank you to all the satellites and the rocket scientists who develop them so they can bounce that useful information into my phone. I swing over to get up out of bed. Oh, cool, my legs actually work. Thank you, scientists, who turned me into a cyborg by inventing the titanium artificial disc I have inserted in my spine to solve crippling back pain. I get dressed. <laughs> I get dressed. Thank you to all the people who invented those really nice stretchy fibres so I don't ever have to iron my clothes. <laughs> inventors. I get to keep my teeth, hopefully, into old age. I turn on the radio and listen to the news. Thank you, Marconi, for your radio wave discoveries. And to, and to all those scientists who allowed those words being spoken in a studio somewhere to be being to me. Or it's coming through my smartphone in my own time, that news. Thank you to the team at CSIRO who use their knowledge of scanning the stars to invent Wi-Fi. And you know it, but let's reflect on that. It took years for a team of star scientists to invent Wi-Fi while they had ongoing research support. Now, bloody hell, how many scientists have I had to thank? And I've only been awake 10 minutes. <laughs> the point is obvious. There is not a part of our lives that does not depend on the ongoing work of science and scientists. The pace of change is extraordinary. If we don't have some understanding of it, it can overwhelm us. So how then has the war on science advanced so far? 
how do we get to a world where if you say an untruth often enough and loud enough, e.g. climate change is a hoax, people will believe you, even to the point of denying what they can see with their own eyes? Is gravity a hoax? Is DNA a hoax? Is Trump, damn it, a hoax? And I am going to talk briefly about climate change because it has been attempts to suppress discussion of this existential threat that triggered the March for Science movement worldwide. Now, I could point to extreme weather, I could point to the, uh, the increasing frequency of floods, I could point to the fact that our coral reefs are already showing signs they're going to be gone in 50 years. But I can give you a really simple example of how our world is changing. I can see it with my own eyes. I'm a skier and I'm watching firsthand the snow disappearing. A little story, I was in Japan for the first time earlier this year skiing, a little treat to myself after Catalyst got slightly rearranged, so we say. And uh, it was my first time there. I was expecting to see lots of Australians. Yes, they were all there. They shared their Vegemite around. And what surprised me, though, was all these Europeans turning up. There were Swiss people and Finns and Germans and Norwegians. And I even skied with a couple of Austrian ski instructors on holiday. What, what were Austrian ski instructors doing taking a holiday in Japan in the middle of the ski season in Europe? The answer was simple. They were coming to look for snow. Now, losing a ski slope might seem like a first world problem, but what about all the major rivers that supply billions of people with food from agriculture that rely, those rivers rely on snow melt? We all know if we're going to have any chance of riding the coming waves of change, it will be science and technology that will give us solutions. Science and technology that will help our economy surf the change, surf the transitions, rather than drown. But science and technology require public support and political will, genuine and sustained support for education and discovery and seeking truth not just lip service. But won't the private sector do science? Well, the truth is the private sector isn't set up for the kind of science that brings game-changing scientific breakthroughs like Wi-Fi. The private sector is set up to take full advantage of those breakthroughs. It's a symbiotic relationship. For example, here is a smartphone, synonymous with Steve Jobs and private enterprise. This smartphone was a bringing together of seven different technologies, none of which were invented by business, all of which were developed by public funded organisations and universities. Science is truth. Science is wealth. Science is adventure. So if you see that your lifestyle and health depend on the continued fruits of modern science, and if you are concerned that the voices of anti-science are winning, then speak up for science and keep doing so 
until the wreckers stop wrecking. we don't have our land to our ancestors we will actually return back you know our lands will be returned back to us one day um, our bubble which is our land and and our um, sciences and our knowledges will come back to us you know once we uh, are recognized in this in sciences and also in the Constitution so that's uh, there we go we leave the uh March for Science uh, event that happened in Sydney. And that report comes from Vivian Langford, who is a client, uh, is a, a climate warrior who does the BZE program on Monday nights at about five o'clock. Thank you, Vivian. We're finished today, Solidarity Breakfast. We've had a rollicking time, a few little errors of judgment on behalf of my technical in. Incompetence, but that's a call. I think it's to do with the early, uh, early hour. But anyway, I'm awake. You're awake, and if you're not, you're podcasting. Uh, don't forget um, May Day uh, celebrations in Melbourne. Uh, there is the march, which starts at one thirty in uh, going from the corner of Ligon and Victoria Parade at the uh, Trades Hall, but. Actually, the day's setting up much earlier than that. The The road's going to be closed off, starts at about 9 with the CFMEU MUA breakfast. Uh, that's 9am. There's going to be uh, rides and uh, other things going on for kids as well as for adults starting at about 11. Uh, it leads on to the uh, march, which is gathering at 1 and then continue, starts at one thirty. There will be a train or bus for kids and also the more mature folk, as they say, to use if they are unable to march with everyone. The traditional May Day platform of speakers, entertainment and solidarity messages will begin at 2.30pm following the march and the Trades Hall Choir will perform for everybody. The Trades Hall Choir is becoming quite excellent over time. The program today, where we looked at the uh, Save Vic um, market rally, which happened on Friday the 21st of Ma uh, April. We talked to Don Sutherland, who had lots of things to tell us about uh, what it means to be a worker who's uniting for a better future. 
uh, we went on and talked to Shane Howard, who's part of the group of people who are trying to save Kalani Beach down the west uh, Western District uh, from being used by uh, commercial interests, racehorse uh, uh, trainer, uh, and uh, at the exclusion of everybody else, because it's pretty difficult to enjoy a, a, a beach when there's uh, racehorses galloping down across the uh, coast. We then went on to March for Science in Sydney. We're going to leave you with uh, another loud number to uh, from the Zen Circus and Brian Rich, just so that uh, uh, Asia Pacific Currents can make comment. They're up next. <laughs> padre ci sta come un temporale pochi lampi di genio nazionale popolare ci sta un canto di sirena tipo un suono sempre uguale niente a vendere con la musica piuttosto col volare you've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.